Hello and welcome to We Are The University, a podcast about the people who make Cambridge University unique. I'm your host, Nick Saffel. In this episode, we speak to Julian Hargreaves about his life in the music industry, where he discovered talent like So Solid Crew. We talk about his decision to leave the music industry and why he chose to pursue a career in academia. We also talk about Julian's research with British Muslim communities and the issues around anti-Muslim discrimination and hate crimes. My colleague Stuart mentioned that you were previously in the music industry. Mm. And for me, when I hear that job, I think, God, that's a dream job. Mm. That you think, I've got to know someone on the inside. And think, <laughs> is well, it is, isn't it? Yeah. It's one of those jobs. Mm. And So what, did you, what was your role, your first role? Um, well, I was a talent spotter. Um, so the technical term is an A&R man, which yeah. stands for artist and repertoire and comes from the days when musicians didn't write their own songs. And oh, so really? the A&R man's job was to marry up singers with songs. So, ah, right. OK. So here, Frank, I've just heard this great song, My Way. Do you fancy recording it? Yeah. Etc. Okay. So do you have sort of measurables then? How, <laughs> what, what, when you're seeing a talent, what, what are the measurables? <laughs> well, yeah, there were actually. I used to ask myself three questions. Right. So it was my job to stand in front of empty... I mean, my, it was my job to watch bands in empty rooms on a Tuesday night in Coventry. Right. And um, I used to ask myself, would I have paid to come in? Because I used to get uh, Okay, free. yeah. And then would I buy the record, Yeah, which is a bit of an outdated thought these days, but would I pay my sort of 10 or 15 pounds for a CD as it was then? And then the final question, the third question, which was the clincher, was would I spend my own money on recording that CD? <laughs> okay. And how many of those fit the bill? <laughs> oh, I don't know, 10 or 20 perhaps. <laughs> okay. So they were the, those are the A stars, isn't it? Yeah. About 10 or 20. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And um, how did you find yourself in that area then? Um, I was obsessed with music as a sort of teenager and um, collected records and played the guitar and sort of dreamt about the lives of the people on the records I was listening to and wondered how they were made and lapped up all those kind of music documentaries and music films. And um, by chance, I met someone who worked in the music industry and he sort of advised me at 15 or 16 to consider doing it pursuing it he right. said you know this is this is a, a, a sort of a realizable ambition so i got through my a levels pretty pretty dismal marks sort of scraped a place at university at manchester poly as was yeah. and i was really there for the music scene at the okay. time which was a sort of uh, early 90s and it was at its sort of peak at the time. Well, of course, yeah. Bands and yeah. DJs and hit singles. And Great era. Club records and all kinds of things. And then it was during my time at university that I um, managed to kind of fall in with a few people who were connected to music. And I'm not a very good guitar player, but I ended up playing sort of session on a couple of records, um, one of which was the b-side this is this yeah. is sort of the pinnacle of my music performance career uh, the b-side of um d-reams things can only get better wow which of course on the a-side yeah on keyboards is professor brian cox yeah of right? course so, so it probably tells you all you need to know about both my music and <laughs> academic careers and okay i found the b-side to uh professor brian cox yeah. that's brilliant that's... so 
What drew you to academia? Well, I, I joined the music industry straight after university and was there for a good 10 or 12 years. And like you said earlier, you always imagined it's a sort of great life. And it was a really, really enjoyable time. You know, I travelled the world, earned money, was responsible for finding, you know, hit acts and number one singles and people getting Brit Awards and Mobos and a Grammy and all kinds of things, you know, really sort of exciting time. Yeah. But as I got through my 20s and into my sort of very early 30s, I realised that I'd, be, I'd become less and less interested in, in sort of pop music and hit records and perhaps my taste in music became a bit more sophisticated and I found, found myself a little bit out of touch with the current crop of 18-year-old, you know, would-be indie bands or would-be singers. And at the time, a friend of mine had given me a subscription to the London Review of Books, and I think right. I was becoming more and more interested in the essays and writers in that and thought about a world beyond perhaps music. And then the other thing is that my final job in the music industry was uh, working at Parlophone Records, the, right. so the home of the Beatles yeah, and Coldplay and Radiohead and all that. And uh, it's a great company to work for. Um, but within the EMI structure, I saw people in their early to mid-40s, the age I'm at now, and they were all getting divorced, going into drug rehab, right. chasing around the sort of 18-year-old secretaries. And I thought, not only do I not want that life, but if I did want that life, I'd have to wait another 10 years to get, to get it. it. And at that point, I thought, my, my, the game's up. I'm going to find something else. Well, I know I didn't get to ask you any of your questions about who are some of the artists. Oh, yeah. 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 Because I'm curious, one of the first artists you might have discovered was So Solid Crew. Yeah. For my sins, I um, was interested in, I've always loved kind of hip hop and R&B and the garage music phenomenon happened in the late 90s in London. When I moved down there for the first job that I did at a sort of big record company, I was really determined to... Um, sign I suppose what is now called urban music but the label wasn't really around at the time but I was really keen really to to put something on the label which reflected this um energy which I witnessed in London in the clubs and record shops and they were a group of about 20 MCs and producers a really unwieldy group actually and um they'd released records themselves um, one had sold thousands of copies, mainly from one branch of HMV on Oxford Street in London, which was sort of self-financed, right. self-promoted and self-distributed, and it had done remarkably well. You know, so, so we picked them up after they'd had some success with these singles. Yeah. And um, yeah, I was, I was really proud of the work they were, they were doing, actually. They, yeah. they had a number one single and top-selling album and won all kinds of awards. Um, and they actually introduced me to a side to London I hadn't seen previously, which was the side of sort of inner city housing estates. They all came from one housing yeah. estate in Battersea. You think of Battersea as being quite an affluent place, but yeah. hiding behind some of those Georgian townhouses are some really moody housing estates. And it really opened my eyes to this you know, other world. And um, rather unfortunately, the, the certain band members... Uh, sort of misbehaved, yeah. maybe some of the success went to their heads a bit. And by the time we were sort of a year or two in, um, members were in and out of prison. 
yeah. huge sort of negative news stories were being told about them. They were banned from Top of the Pops, banned from Jules Holland, banned from most music venues around the UK. Wow. It became quite a sort of controversial group to work with. So um, by the time it ended three years later, I, I must say I was quite relieved. But certainly within the first year, year and a half, um, the work they did was was amazing. And coming from such humble beginnings yeah. to sort of you know storm the pop charts, as it were, was a really remarkable achievement. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, uh, other, we had um, we had Amy Winehouse come and uh, audition for us in our office. Wow, which was a wow. an afternoon. I yeah. won't forget. Um, she was already on her way to being signed to Island Records. Island Records, yeah. And the manager was kind of showing her to other people, I think in the hope of improving his terms of this deal with yeah, Island. Course. So we weren't yeah. ever really in with a shout of signing her, but it was nice to um, uh, to see her in action so, so close, you know. And um, I suppose I've always been a bit of a generalist when it comes to music, and so I suppose the other um, stuff I did was with Paul Weller, who worked, who was signed to the label, um, and then I made a, I made the last studio recording of a British folk artist called John Martin, who had been a really sort of pivotal force in British folk in the seventies, right, with a bit of a cult following, and he disappeared and he'd moved to Ireland and he was drinking too much and he was quite ill and, and we tried to sort of coax him back to make um, a record and I'd been inspired by the Johnny Cash records that Rick Rubin had made with him, which really revived his career. So I thought, ah, easy peasy. I'll do that with John Martin. And we'll get some famous musicians in. We'll go and find someone nice to record. And it didn't quite work out like that. Uh, Paul Weller contributed a song and recorded something. We had Mavis Staples on one of the tracks. He's a bit of a hero of mine for the Staples singers in the 60s. And... So we made a, what I thought was a good record yeah. and we put him back on the radio and he got on um, Jules Holland yeah. and he sold out the Shepherd's Bush Empire and then went to sell out a UK tour. And then within a year or two of all that happening, uh, unfortunately he passed away. But I think I look back on that particular project as with, with the most pride in terms of the music that I was involved with and was able to contribute towards wasn't the most records I've ever sold. Yeah. Wasn't the largest audience I've, I've ever reached with a, an act or an act's reached with, with my help. But it was the most pleasing outcome, taking this guy from the doldrums, putting him back on national television mm. and radio and really reconnecting him with an audience that were actually really kind of eager to, to hear this record. So I'd say that was probably the, the best single thing I did. Yeah. And what was the sort of what did you study at university then to get history? Into history, okay. Because mm. what's your study, your area, your field right now? I suppose by training, I'm a social scientist. Okay. Mm. But you sort of look at different cultures in the UK then. Yes. Right? Okay. Yeah. And how do you find that bridge into history then? From your um, just, it's pretty just, clean break actually from yeah. my historical studies. I think that when I went back into education, I did a law qualification in London first and was lucky enough to work at um, a law firm called Bernberg Pearson Partners, which was headed up, which still is headed up by Gareth Pierce, who's quite a well-known human rights lawyer. And ah, she okay. has defended all kinds of people, from the Guildford Four to the Birmingham Six, to uh, defended people on well-known terrorist cases. And 
So this gave me a sort of exposure, I think, right. to to actually some of the issues I'd been reading about for the previous years in the London Review of Books, actually. It yeah. put me kind of, you know, sort of upfront and personal with a lot of these um, issues and concerns. And that really got me thinking about British Muslim communities, about the proportionality of the government's response to 9-11 and 7-7 and to issues of... Uh, social justice and social inequality and that that really got that sort of ball rolling i think okay yeah and you're sort of what's your main sort of area right now because is it you sort of you're still talking about muslim communities yeah. in britain yeah what's your sort of main area of focus then well i i split my time between two sort of forms of research so during my masters and phd i became interested in statistical analysis and i hadn't really been very good at maths at school and and I hadn't really engaged with it at all. But as I became more interested in some of the campaign issues yeah. around British Muslim communities, I got a sense, not that the issues or the campaigns were relying on exaggeration, but there didn't seem to be a lot of evidence available. So, for instance, I'd be reading a book about Islamophobia yeah. or counter-terrorism legislation, turning a page expecting to see some kind of breakdown of how many people involved, okay. how many communities are under threat or feel angry towards the government or just some kind yeah. of quantification and realise quite quickly it, it wasn't there. So that, that became the kind of PhD gap that I sort of okay. looked at. So in order to address that gap, I had to learn quite quickly sort of advanced statistical methods, um, kind of boring stuff like statistical modelling and um, multivariate analysis and all these kind of quite complex procedures, but um, I had good training, good teachers. So I sp spent half my time doing statistical analysis. Yep. So I've just done something on police stop and search within Muslim communities. I'm working with a colleague at the moment, looking at um, the things that Muslim people find offensive compared to the things that Jewish people find offensive and lo right. looking for patterns that determine being offended in each of those two groups. Okay. Um, so that's the sort of statistical side. Yeah. And then the other side is more qualitative, where I go out into the field, talk to people, um, conduct focus groups, yeah. observe events, get involved on a kind of more human yeah. level. Because then you'd get such, I'm sort of guessing here, you get much more sense of isolation and sort of resilience sort of to what, they're you know, what people are facing. Yeah. I mean, the, I actually find there's a big debate in social science and all, all over the... Um, all over the sort of related disciplines, which is better or which is worse, and the drawbacks and the benefits of various um, social research methods. But I've only ever seen them as a sort of complete toolkit, really. Yeah. So sometimes the stats will reveal something which I'm interested in, and then I want to go, I want to go and talk to someone about it. Yeah. And sometimes an account that's shared with me will trigger something in my head that makes me think, ah, I wonder if that's the case for more than just this location or this community. And I wonder if you can maybe find a national pattern and that sends me back to the data. You know, yeah. so sort of like a, a sort of flip-flop between the two, really. Yeah. What do you think, um, what would you say the relationship between uh, British communities and the state is at the moment? Well, from the field work and the accounts that people share with me, I'd say overall it's quite negative. And I think suspicion around counter-terrorism policies such as prevent and grievances based on the British government's foreign policy in the Middle East has 
caused a sense within British communities of an adverse social climate. It's difficult to generalise about an entire population, as you might expect. And it's important not to over-exaggerate these negative attitudes. They're definitely out there. But I do see the green shoots of improvement. Um, there's better engagement, I think, through local government mm. than perhaps there was certainly 20 or so years ago. So things are improving, yep. but generally suspicion and negativity are the kind of main factors. Yeah. So when I hear those words suspicion and negativity, I also automatically think of communication, media, yeah, and the sort of type of things you see in the news yeah. and the papers yeah, and how that sort of spreads it. And I don't know if that's a... It's that's a huge, a area. huge factor yeah. when I talk to um, people out there across the UK. Um, it's interesting, though, actually, because we might assume, maybe in a way correctly, we might assume that the negativity in the media is largely generated by the sun and the mail, yeah. right-wing tabloids. But actually, if you look across uh, the spectrum of newspapers, mm. including The Guardian, The Independent, The Times, including apparently non-partisan broadcasters such as the BBC, if you look across those, mm. what you see is an association made between Muslims and violence and conflict yeah. and uh, discrimination and all, all kinds of sort of negative issues. And I think that plays into, firstly, non-Muslim stereotypical views of Muslim communities. Yeah. And secondly, I think it feeds in to this notion of sort of suspicion and negativity within the communities themselves. Yeah. And of course, you've got stop and search. Yeah. Because that obviously adds to the suspicion as well. Yeah. Yeah, it does. It really does. Interestingly, I found within uh, stop and search within Muslim communities... Yeah is that there's very little data about the number of Muslim people who are stopped and searched. And often the campaign materials, which really dominate the literature, the, the scholarly literature is heavily influenced by campaigning and activism. Right. And if you look at those reports and pamphlets and leaflets, what you find is a use of language that really ties in with an older analysis of black British communities. And they've kind oh, of transferred yeah. it fairly uncritically as a way of explaining what's going on in British Muslim communities. Yeah. So the last piece of work I did um, using statistics that was published looked at some data from this thing called the Crime Survey, which uh, interviews around 40,000 people a year. And within that, there's a small group of Muslim people who are surveyed. Mm -hmm. And they're asked a series of questions, as is everyone in the survey, about their experiences of the police including have you been stopped by the police and have you yeah. been searched by the police? And what I found was that using all my sort of fancy statistical modelling, what I found was that being Muslim doesn't determine the likelihood of being stopped. So there are other factors at play, such as being male, yeah. being young, uh, being non-white. These yes. are the big three factors. Right? Yeah. However, once stopped... Being Muslim dramatically increases the likelihood of being searched. Really? Mm. Okay. So, unfortunately, the statistics don't really uh, give you an explanation as to why this might be the yeah. case. But the data suggest that there's a process out there on the street where perhaps police officers are randomly stopping people or stopping people based on ethnicity yeah. or 
some some more rational suspicion, establishing their religion yep. or uh, an assumed religious identity, and then going on to search them based on that, um, which I find troubling because the police aren't really expected to delve that deeply into someone's no. um, identity at the point of, of being stopped. stopped. Yeah. So the idea that they're, you know, where have you been? I've been to a mosque or what's in your bag, that kind of sequence yeah. of questions, I find, you know, quite troubling. Yeah, that is quite troubling. Is that, so have you mainly looked at British populations though? Mm. Is that the sort of same case in Europe then? Um, I'm not sure about Europe, but in the US, yeah. there's a phenomenon which criminologists have talked about called driving while black, which is yeah. a sort of half joking critique of but, the police yeah. practice over there, yeah. where people are stopped for being black and behind the wheel. Yeah. Um, but actually, other other research has really dug into the numbers, has found that there are other factors at play. But actually, once stopped, it's black drivers who are most often uh, searched and the vehicle is searched. Yeah. So that echoes the work I've done in the UK yeah. in that being stopped is a bit random. Yeah. But once stopped, being black, being Muslim, have a huge part to play in being searched. Yeah. And psychologically, I suppose that is quite damaging for the individual and perhaps the, their wider social network because that will be passed on and you can understand why resentment develops, especially yeah. uh, in a, among the young, as you mm. say, if they're yeah. also more likely mm. to be stopped in this way. Yeah, so, yeah, you're quite right. So even if only a small number are stopped and searched, these things have a huge ripple effect and the ripple effect generates grievance narratives mm. which then inform the ways in which large numbers of people view the state view their place in society view relations with non-muslims this has a huge effect yeah and the yeah. data you collect do yeah. you pass do you where does that go did you use that to inform people in public office um well that's the, always the hope course yeah um so the stop and search article was republished i had to sort of translate it into plain english without any statistical equations but was republished in a policing magazine police professional um so that was a sort of satisfying outcome of the um of the publication of the journal um i think within government there's a tendency to Eyes roll when you talk about evidence and statistics because I think a lot of people within government departments feel like they're swamped with that kind of stuff, actually. Yeah, sure. And I sure. know that when yeah. civil servants come to Cambridge, which they do quite regularly, to talk to academics, it's mm. the ones who perhaps are in different fields, philosophy, engineering, some non-related subjects where I think uh, their imaginations are sparked. Yeah. Another person with another suitcase full of statistics is yeah. probably the mm. last person yeah. they want to speak to. So yeah. there's a bit of an overload of statistics in, in public, um, in policy circles. Yeah. But I think within public debates, they can be really useful. They can be a useful way of breaking down misapprehensions or breaking down stereotypes. Mm. You know, look, not all Muslims are like this, or look, not all state interactions have to be like this. You know, they can be a good way of sort of complicating narratives so they don't become sort of myths, which I think can be quite damaging in social society, in sort of, in society. Yeah. Of course, and at community level, I'm just thinking when you're talking about the myths and things like that, 
implementation-wise, is there anything that we can sort of, to change the sort of stereotypes and the myths and things like that, is there anything that on a... It's tricky, really. I mean, I suppose the job of academics and particularly the Wolf Institute, where I work, is really to communicate mm. some of those conclusions which perhaps focus on the lack of inevitability. So yeah. social conflict isn't inevitable. You know, the relations between groups, the relations between communities in the state, these things are all contingent on political movements, on, on a, events, international events, domestic events. So I think it's important to break those down and to say, look, these things happen for a reason. They're not just embedded in the fabric of society. And that's probably the most useful um, application of you know social science findings in this field, I think. Yeah. There's a real trend, I think, though, in public discourse and in, in, in certainly in the media and, and social media mm. in particular to... Uh, sometimes antagonise, flare up those mm. those conflicts. Do do you think that that's um, something you've observed, and is that something that Muslim communities are also wary of, perhaps? Um, I mean, in terms of sort of the more antagonistic end of the debate, I see that from all quarters actually. So I see um, organisations which purport to represent Muslim communities taking a very hard line view on all government intervention and see it as part of a structural problem of of power and of sort of post-colonialism and that's a really difficult attitude to to sort of challenge really because they tend to be those sort of groups and the organizations tend to have very sort of deep-rooted um suspicion of sort of state apparatus um on the on the other side of course thinking about bigotry and racism, particularly mm. anti-Muslim racism, again, it's quite difficult to tackle because some of those attitudes are quite deep-rooted. But also, on the other hand, they are, in a way, they exist at quite a superficial level. So a lot of the... What, what I mean by that is a lot of the incidents that um, are shared with me when I go out to do field interviews mm. are of sort of microaggressions, sort of discriminations that happen at the everyday level, um, being ignored in a shop, having a bus driver not stop at a bus stop, having a ticket collector at a railway station appear rude to a woman uh, in Muslim dress. These things are hard to counter, they're hard to legislate against, and in a way, they're hard to... Uh, they're hard to... Tackle and cure. Yeah. yeah. Um, one of the one of the issues, perhaps, is that, as you say, they will, Muslim communities are often linked with problems. Yeah. Or yeah. Um, negative trends or violence, mm -hmm. as you suggested mm -hmm. earlier. Um, and we never really hear much about what Muslim communities are doing on a proactive level yeah we don't no. although I did notice that after mm. the Grenfell Tower yeah fire there was there was a, a bit of a focus suddenly there was a focus in the, in, mm. the, in the media on mm. what some mm. of those Muslim communities were doing to support victims yeah. of that fire but that was the first time I'd, I'd really noticed it yeah and it disappeared do, do you think that's a that's something that can be countered in any way by um, perhaps by by I don't know by uh, communities coming together more I think there are more community 
um, endeavours out there than you might assume. Yes, I'm, I'm so sure. Grenfell yeah. definitely revealed a handful. Um, I think the status of charitable giving within the Islamic faith is huge. It's one of the sort of central pillars of the faith. And so talk to any mosque, any imam, and you'll be told about charitable giving in the local communities, uh, international aid, um, donations, all kinds of things. In terms of um, issues around counterterrorism, whilst you do have groups who only wish to criticise, there have been some really big projects out there um, led by Muslim organisations which have sought to determine attitudes within Muslim communities, not just towards counter-terrorism, but towards terrorism itself and towards issues of extremism. So I'm thinking of the work currently done by the Muslim Council of Britain, a huge nationwide project looking at capturing attitudes and maybe looking at generating solutions to this stuff. Um, currently underway, there is a commission for countering extremism led by a prominent female Muslim activist, Sarah Khan, and she's currently collecting evidence around what can be done um, to counter Muslim extremism, but also far-right extremism. So the idea that Muslim communities aren't doing enough or could do more is something which is debated, but actually the evidence points in, a, in another direction. There's a lot of activity out there, actually. Oh, yes, I'm sure. It's, yeah, and I, I don't doubt that. It's just yeah. that it's, it's never really highlighted is it no it never gets no. to be the focus of attention that's right and i think that comes down to this kind of bias within the wider broadcast and printed media around this association made between muslims and islam and conflict violence negativity um also i think and you'll perhaps know this being a, a former broadcaster that good news doesn't really sell newspapers <laughs> it doesn't really make the yeah. 10 yeah. o'clock broadcast yeah. And so, good news story, nah. yeah. mm. bad news, yeah. it sells, doesn't it? Yeah. You know? mm. So, th that's probably one of the reasons. There's a bias towards bad news. Yeah, and, and, and conflict. And yeah, conflict that's right, well. that's right. Within society, yeah, yeah. Yeah. it always generates Drama. headlines, mm. yeah. it? because it, is, yeah, it's a, it becomes a drama. This, um, this available narrative, this problematic narrative around Muslims and Islam is at people's fingertips all mm. the time, you know. And the, Actually, I've talked about the Muslim Council of Britain. They've done really good work over the last year or two in challenging news stories. Um, Mick Dardversi there has had remarkable successes with newspapers withdrawing articles, correcting articles, uh -huh. um, publishing apologies, stories around... I don't know if you were aware of it, but there was a story around a foster child and out of nowhere the story became whether this child should or should not be welcomed into a Muslim home oh, yes. and Muslim foster parents. And, mm. and Mikdar did a really good job of saying to newspaper editors, look, this is a, this is a story about fostering um, the continual uh, repetition of the, the, the Muslim identity of the, the home and the foster parents is really secondary. Can we move beyond this and so there was apologies issued and and uh stories redrafted and so it can be done you know these challenges can be made effectively but they're few and far between that's it from us at the we are the university podcast if you like what you're hearing don't forget to head on over to the itunes store or spotify or stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts from and give us a five-star rating 
I'm Nick Safwell, and see you next week. <laughs>